Welcome to another message from LifePoint Church, located at 400 South Abilene in Valley Center, Kansas. For more information on LifePoint Church, go to our website at lpcag.org. It is our prayer to invest in generations to influence community. And now, today's message. We are in a series called Unashamed. We are working through the book of Romans, and Pastor Steve has, has tagged me in to do the second half of chapter one. And um, if I was to be quite honest with you, the past week has been very heavy. Um, as I have been trying to study this verse, get my, get my arms around it, I explained it to the worship team like this. Um, studying this verse and figuring out how to preach these passages of Scripture has been like when you take the laundry out of the dryer and you're going to go take it somewhere else to fold it, and you think to yourself, I don't need a basket. I can get this all in one trip. And so you grab all of it, and you waddle over to the living room, or you're going to throw it on the couch, but inevitably, you lose a sock, right, as you're walking. And so you bend over to pick up the sock, and now your kids' pajamas have fallen out. And so you lean over to pick those up, and all of a sudden, you're like, why? Why did I try to do this in one trip? Because I'm using my feet to kind of kick it up into my arms, and it's just like unwieldy, right? And that's how, I mean, I, I, this word, this word cumbersome, I never used that word, but that's how it has felt diving into Romans. And really, most of Romans is like that. There's so much systematic theology that Paul is trying to install into these early believers. Um, and to, I, I feel like you could preach an, inf, an infinite amount of messages from this one passage. Um, but really, the topic that we have to deal with today is God's wrath. And um, when I was studying this, a potential sermon title that I had for this was, Welp, Yikes, <laughs> right? Because as we read this, our flesh, that's what it wants to say is, Welp, Yikes. Like, that's not very hopeful to me th this morning. That doesn't really give me that good old attaboy. I want to just go out and serve Jesus. Um, if anything, like, if we read this outside of the context of the rest of Scripture and the rest of Romans, we could probably walk away today feeling kind of beat up, kind of discouraged, um, but I hope today, by the time we start landing this plane, we feel very hopeful, and we remember that in spite of the wrath of God, it is because of the wrath of the God, uh, of God, that he also in that loves us so dearly. Um, my friend Cameron Combs, who's uh, the associate pastor at Colonial Heights, he came and talked to our students this past summer and, and talked about reading the Bible. He uses this wonderful illustration when talking about how do we read the Old Testament, and he said, reading the Old Testament is kind of like being dropped off at an old castle and being told to go, go take a tour of it, just go walk around it. And you start walking around this dimly lit castle and you're, you're stubbing your toe on foreign furniture that you don't really quite understand. You're bumping your head on hanging lights that you're like, where did that go? And, and it's kind of like weird and spooky. You don't quite really understand what's happening. And he said, and what Jesus does is he is the flashlight that goes into the Old Testament with us, right? And that in the Old Testament, we can see um, th this, this thing that's so foreign and spooky and weird to us becomes illuminated when we see that all of it centers around Christ and his coming and his, him being crucified and resurrected for, for humanity, right? That, that the, the Bible Project uses this language that I've completely ripped off and stolen and used with our, with our students, but that the Bible is this unified story that points to Jesus, right? And I think that even though Cameron uses that example for the Old Testament, I think that in Romans, specifically here, in Romans 1, 18 through 32, 
that we bring Jesus into this with us, right? That we don't read this story, we don't read this passage of Scripture completely removed from its context, but we sit today with Jesus in our midst, knowing what he has done for us, knowing the greater context of Scripture, so that we can get a better grasp of what God is telling us through the Apostle Paul here. And so, we're going to jump into this. I mean, that was a long preamble, and I know we need to get going. Youth pastors preaching, I know your expectations today, okay? We're going to get home by noon. It's going to be amazing. Um, with that said, as you are able and if you are willing, would we, can we posture ourselves to read God's word today? Would you stand with me if you are able to stand um, as we read this today so we can posture our physical bodies to model what our hearts are doing as we pay attention to his word? Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. The subtitle here is God's Wrath Against Sinful Humanity. This is the word of the Lord. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over and the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do not they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Precious God, we thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. God, this is a heavy, heavy passage of scripture. I don't want to be a navigator of this, but God, I pray that you would just anoint me today to be a faithful tour guide of your word, that God, anything that I say that is of my opinion and is not lined up with your word, God, let it go in one ear, out the other. But God, if it is your word revealed in scripture, and it is useful to us today to teach us, to train us, to correct us, <coughs> God, I just pray that it would take deep root within us, that it would radically change the way we view ourselves, view you, and help us, God, to bring hope to a world that desperately needs it. In your name I pray, amen. Well, good morning. 
We're going to break down a lot of what Paul has to say today, and there's a lot here, and we're going to try to do our best to kind of see it at a 10,000-foot view. Um, But what I hope we walk away with is that God did not save us in spite of his wrath for sin, but because of it. That God is so passionately in the business of raising what is dead back to life. Right, And that's really the, the, the title, the, the thesis of today Is that this is a wrath that saves That God, um, the same God that raised Israel out of bondage That raised Christ from the grave Wants to raise us out of our sin um, To an abundant, everlasting life In perfect communion with Him But today we, we heed Paul's words here as a warning To what humanity is destined to do If we suppress the truth about God and us. And uh, that's really our, our first point today. And so it's a complete thought that there is a fundamental knowledge of God that haunts humanity. And our suppression of it is what leads to our downfall. And we'll break this down for a little while here. We're going to, sermon is a little bit top heavy today, okay? So we're going to be here for a while and then hopefully smooth sailing from there. But, but excuse me. I don't have the, the cordless mic, so I can't just point the microphone away, so I apologize if I just cough right into this microphone. Um, but here's the thing. We may be sitting here today a little bit skeptical, maybe a lot of bit skeptical, cynical, say, I don't quite buy into this. That is okay. It is wonderful that you are here, even in your doubt and even in your struggle to, to, to reconcile the truths of the Bible. But we might say, you know what, I, I want to believe in things that are quantifiable, things that are tangible, things that I can touch the things that I can taste, see, hear, that I can take in with my senses. But what I would say is that I do still believe that even in that, that there is something within all of humanity, and I think we see it in Scripture, that longs for something more, that longs to believe that there's something beyond this fabric of just the tangible, that there's something supernatural in this world. And maybe this is a little bit anecdotal, and it's not the greatest evidence of that, But here's some things I have to ask of us. Like, why do stories of heroism, of goodness, of reconciliation stir our hearts so much when we read them, when we hear them, when we watch them? It seems so beyond just the chemical and biological reaction that something moves us, that we want to share it with others. Why do beautiful songs of both triumph and heartache move us? Make us cry, make us feel something, and want to share that experience with somebody else. Why does it seem like we have captured something magical or even holy and miraculous when we spend hours talking and laughing with our friends and family that we love late into the evening, right? Wishing that that would never end. There's something to those moments where it's like, I think we might have slipped into eternity for a second there. I think we might have experienced something that was beyond just what's tangible. Why does, and maybe this brings it home for some of us, why does taking in a perfect Valley Center sunset when you drive into town from 85th Street, the whole town is silhouetted against a beautiful sunset, why does that bring some sort of awe and wonder to me, right? That there's, there's something woven into me that says, wait a minute, there's more to this life than what is simply quantifiable by my own understanding, my own expectations. There's something that has to be transcended, something beyond the fabric of my own existence. And Paul is making this case all throughout Romans, and specifically here. Um, But if you even look at some of the most intellectual atheists and agnostics that have come to know Christ over the history of the church, what's so wild about it 
is that very often the reason that they choose to follow Jesus is not because they had a great debate with rigid apologetics that gave them the cosmological argument for God and the teleological argument for God or all these things that said, see, 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 you must look and see that God is real. I mean, those are great things, and I hope that we, we seek to, to understand those things, but what oftentimes wins these people over is the lingering, haunting sense that there has to be something more. Seeing the experiences of those in faith and saying, I want, I want a taste of that. I want to know what that actually is. C.S. Lewis talks about how he came to faith, um, and he, he gives this whole funny uh, example where he's like, well, first of all, I, I didn't want to believe in God. Because I looked out to the world and I saw how cruel it was. And I said, there's no way God could exist with how cruel and awful this world is. But then I realized, well, what's my comparison? Like, how can I say something is cruel if something also then can't be good? He's like, so there has to be some sort of absolute good out there, right? He's like, well, well maybe, maybe there is an absolute good. Maybe I just made that lie up in my head. Well, wait a second. If there's lies, then that means to me there's also truth. And it's so funny how he just reasons this whole out. And basically what it comes down to is by trying over and over again to run away from God, to explain God away, he hunted down the very God he was searching for, right? That by trying so hard to reason himself out of God, he reasoned himself right back into God. And that's how, how he came to know faith. And I think that that's a lot of our human experience, that there's just something we can't quite shake as humanity. There's a longing for something more to life. There's a longing for there to be, there has to be, part of those fairy tales have to be true, right? That's why, that's why all of the stories that we read about as kids and we, when we w watch with our children, those fairy tales, there's, there's something so compelling about them. There's something so compelling about living forever. There's something so compelling about being able to fly. There's something about, so compelling about the happily ever after, the good king who comes back to save his people. We want to hold on to that, right? Because they're all glimpses of the greater story. They're all trying to tell the same story of Christ crucified, resurrected, and coming to rescue the world. I think we see it, <coughs> excuse me, in moments like just a couple months ago when Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills medically passes away on a football field and, and, and shakes us, right? Now, for a moment there, everybody who was wanting to take in sports or tune into a game, all of a sudden said, I hope to this random abyss out there, please let there be a God. Please let prayer work. And you see people saying things like, well, don't really believe in God, but I'm going to say a prayer for this young man. I hope he pulls through. Or you, um, you see pundits wanting to, to pray over the air because they're like, I have to believe, like I'm shaken in this. And why is that? Because for a moment there, pretty much universally across the U.S., we all became very aware of our own mortality, right? Like, we experienced that individually. Um, just full transparency. Um, my Grandma Massey passed away this morning. And, it, and it, she's a wonderful lady. She lived a wonderful life. We were able to spend time with her last week. It was awesome. Got to pray with Grandma. Got to give her a kiss on the forehead. And you know what? She walked into paradise. She saw her oldest son this morning. Um, that she has been waiting for that reunion her whole life. Um, and, uh, and so I celebrate that. But I still have to deal with this, this grievance of mortality. Of just being like, you know, like dealing with the reality that one day, unless Jesus comes back, none of us are making, out of, making it out of here alive, right? Like, none of us make it out alive of this. Um, and when we, saw, we see a situation like Damar Hamlin passing away and being revived, like, we all have to deal with that as humanity. There's something within us that says, surely there's more to life. Surely there's more to this. Surely there's something to us 
praying together and praying over something like this. Uh, Thomas R. Schreiner, who has written textbooks about Romans, be really cool if he could preach this morning, um, but he's just a wise, wise man. Hold on one second, let me cough real quick. Okay, we're back. Thomas R. Schreiner, he has a great quote about this, uh, specifically Romans 1, uh, 18 through, or 20 through 22. He says, God has stitched his greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that his majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created world, right? To put it in the, in the context of, of, of Romans, right? That, that in Romans 1, 20 through 22, we'll go back and read it really quickly. It says, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, meaning his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an excuse. We're, we're excuseless when it comes to realizing that there's something more to this life. There's something powerful and divine about this creation around us that's been created by something much bigger than us. It says, 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They knew him, but they didn't give thanks to him, and their thinking became futile. It became basic. It became imminent instead of transcendent, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I think what's so interesting is Paul right here is kind of almost giving us like a flashback to Genesis, right? He's like, since we walked out of Eden, all we have done is darken our hearts more and more and more so that we, we are so futile, thinking that we are so wise and we're, we're discovering all this new technology. We're figuring out life. We're making things better. We have cars that drive themselves. We're awesome. And in that, we are losing the beauty of God, right? That we have, we have, we have said, no, we are God, right? Um, I talk about, uh, I, I talked about with a few other people, like, man, doesn't it feel like social media is just this new Tower of Babel, right? That like, um, that all we're doing is we're saying, look, like, look, we can be like God. We can be anywhere at any time by just looking at our phone. We can be omniscient. I don't know any facts, but I have Google on my phone, right? Like, I can look up anything I need to at any moment. Wait, how many tablespoons are in a cup? Uh, you know, like, I can look up anything I need to at any moment. And I, I, I have this uh, feeling of omnipotence, like I'm all-powerful because I can wield this technology however I want. And what has it done to us? We don't speak the same language anymore, right? Like, we, we, all we do is fight. All we do is bicker. All we do is tribalize into our own little pockets of, of values and ideals. And all we do is fight. We just speak babble to each other. It's English, but it's, I mean, depending on how you type. But still, like, we, we fight against each other. We Thinking we have become so wise, man, do we look like fools so often. We just keep finding new ways to sin against each other. Psalms 19, the psalmist writes it like this. You've heard it a million times. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They have no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So here's our problem that we have spent our entire existence dealing with that yet, even though we have this haunting knowledge that says there has to be something more, we just continually suppress it, right? Paul says that in their wickedness, they suppress this knowledge. And what we do is we either we avoid it at all costs, and I'm, I'm saying we as in me too, like I'm right in this, either we avoid it at all costs, or we're going to morph it into something more palatable for our flesh. Why is that? Why do we do that? Because 
fundamentally to recognize a being that is all-powerful and holy and all-knowing and is present among us means that we have to radically and systematically change the way we live our lives, right? That we have, and in view the world around us, it forces us to deal with sin. It forces us to start to deal with these absolute realities that are very scary to us and not as palatable to us because we want to live the way that we want to live. Um, Tim Keller talks about this using, using a lot of uh, philosophical terminology. He talks about first-order beliefs and second-order beliefs and how we all have these things. And Andy, you can go ahead and throw that up there really quickly. Um, so these first-order beliefs are this. That on a foundational level, we know there's a, you know, quote-unquote God. There's some sort of deeper supernatural reality to life. And this haunting feeling has been with us since we walked out of the Garden of Eden. But then we have these second-order beliefs, right? These, this new software update. But we suppress it and convince ourselves that we don't actually believe it. We write it off as a fairy tale or it's wishful thinking, or we will believe some version of this God exists, but this God lets me live however I want. He's not involved in what's happening at all uh, here on earth, right? And so these are these, these second order things that we just sort of inherit as we grow in our maturity and our lives. We start to say, well, I, I believe parts of that, or no, I reject it entirely. But overall, deep within us, in the deepest parts of us, we kind of want to believe this, right? We kind of want to believe that there has to be something deeper, something greater, something beyond ourselves, something beyond our comprehension. But we do this because to come, again, because to come to grips with the God of the Bible being this deity that has been hunting us down, pursuing us, whose love and kindness has been trying to pull us into repentance, it is pretty traumatic for our flesh, right? It's pretty traumatizing to us to have to come to grips with that. You know, to, to come and encounter the living God is to have to deal with the reality that we are dead and wasted without being in Him, that we are depraved, and that God is bigger than what our mind could conjure up. And it's costly to us. There's a reason why Jesus gives the examples when he says, hey, if you want to follow me, let me just really quickly tell you the cost. Um, I'm going to give you guys an example is what he says. Like, would you start building a tower, like a great tower, without considering how much it's going to cost you? Because what if you start building it and you get halfway and the whole town just starts saying, look at this idiot. <laughs> he thought he could build the coolest tower ever, and he failed. And Jesus says, man, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross, die to yourself, and, and surrender your life and follow me. And, and think about that. Like, they heard that in the context of not seeing Jesus do it himself, right? So it's even more like they didn't know Jesus was going to die on a cross, but he's saying this language like, hey, you have to consider the fact that if you're going to follow me, pick, pick up this, this burden of capital punishment and recognize that that life has to die and follow after me. It's a costly thing. It's traumatizing to our flesh to deal with this idea of following after God. And so we suppress it. Um, one more football thing today, and then I promise that we are done. I am so sorry if you're not a fan of the Chiefs. I respect your fanhood. You are, you are a loyal fan of whatever team it may be. I'm a Chiefs fan. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. So here's the thing. In the AFC Championship game, um, those of us who are like, you know, we're the real fans, we know that the voice of the Chiefs is Mitch Holthus, right? That we turn off the TV and we turn up the radio to listen to the voice of the Chiefs, Mitch. Uh, Mitch is a wonderful man, grew up in Kansas, loves Jesus, is super plugged into a church in Kansas City. Um, listening to his testimony and interviews is so awesome. 
um, and, uh, but he's, he's the voice of the Chiefs, and he always has these really dramatic things to say at the end of games. And, uh, of course, all year long, we've been, we've, been, we've been, you know, gassing ourselves up, like, nobody believes in us. Is that true? No. But we're going to pretend like it's true so that we feel fired up about our team, right? Um, and so the whole narrative this year for the team has been, like, you know, bulletin board material. Anytime somebody says, well, you guys can't win without Tyreek Hill. You guys can't win without that or this or whatever. Um, we're just going to prove them wrong, right? The Chiefs win the AFC Championship game, and Mitch Holtis has this amazing call. And he says this. He says, you can doubt the Chiefs. You can dislike the Chiefs. You can disrespect the Chiefs. You're going to have to deal with the Chiefs, right? And all of us fans, we got goosebumps. We're like, yeah, that's us. Now listen, Mitch is a wonderful Christian man, and I don't think he would mind if I kind of usurped his quote here. But what Paul is saying here about the reality of God and the wrath of God and what we're going to have to come to grips with as humans is, is we could take this we could take this and change it. Yes, thank you, Andy. To the Romans 1, Mitch Holtis version. You can doubt God. You can dislike God. You can disrespect God. You're going to have to deal with God, right? You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to come to grips with the reality that there's something deeper going on here that's haunting you. That's, that in those moments when you're laying in bed and wondering, is life even worth living or what's the point of all of this, the Holy Spirit is, is trying to grab you and say, there is. Let me show you more. Like, let me show you the life worth living. We're restless because there's this dull pain within us that says there's got to be something more. And Paul just all throughout Romans is saying, like, listen, God's power, his divine nature, they're there. And what the problem is, you become so darkened by your own expectations, by your own understandings of the world, that you can't break out of that and see, wait a second, there is some beauty to this world, and I know that there has to be something more to this. Uh, St. Augustine has the famous quote, he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Man, have I been there, just restless, just like I can't, I can't shake it, um, that, that, that for me specifically, just, just in bleak moments of life, right? Not knowing what the end of result of some situation is going to be, being so restless, not able to sleep. And then there's God who says, find your rest in me. Find um, your identity in me. I think that a lot of humanity, what I want to believe is this, right? That uh, um, I'm, I'm losing the phraseology of it. Um, but it's this idea of, you know, you want to get people to benefit, uh, positively presume, that's what I'm thinking of, right? And we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. We want to positively presume about people. And what my positive presumption about humanity is this. We're looking for the right thing in every single possible wrong place, right? That humanity, since we walked out of Eden, has echoed this song that we sung in the 90s and 2000s, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? And we're all singing that same song. What can make me whole again? Is it this relationship? Is it this substance? Is it this self-actualization? Is it this, is this life coach? Is it wh whatever it may be? What can make me whole again? What can wash away my sin? And the song goes, nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? I am restless until I find my rest in him. I am a, I'm a vagabond. I'm just traveling from place to place trying to find my home unless I find it in Christ, find my rest in him. Number two, recognizing our depravity only sweetens the reality of our salvation, okay? 
So maybe it hurts at first to say, oh my goodness, I'm depraved. We kind of already knew that, right? We kind of knew that about ourselves. We, are, we know the depths of our sin, right? We are the ones that have to sit in it. Uh, when, we, when we finally come to a break and realize all that, man, God, I am so messed up. But to recognize our depravity should only sweeten the reality of salvation. When we look at this list in Romans, that's a heavy list of things. Those are a lot of things that, that, that are not fun for us to talk about and deal with, but the reality is that none of us leave this assessment of depravity unscathed. We can easily say, well, I don't deal with that. I don't deal with the people in that camp deal with, and I don't deal with the issues that those people deal with. Um, and, and, and what's so funny about that is inadvertently, what have we, what have we done? We have cast wrath upon ourselves, right? Because we're boastful. We're self-righteous. We are the Pharisees. We're the same people that Jesus flipped tables on and said, you don't get it, right? Like, you have puffed yourself up so much. You, you have made yourself above the others that none of us leave Romans 1 unscathed. All of us have fallen short. All of us are on this list. And we have to come to grips with that. That because of generations of generations of, of humanity um, turning their hearts against God's um, and, 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 and with that, bring upon God's wrath that we have to come to grips with our depravity. But here's the awesome thing, that God's wrath is not, is not something for us to be terrified of. I mean, that's a part of it, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But ultimately, if we can grasp why God is angry and what God is trying to do on the other end of it, all it does is bring hope. Andy, you can throw up that next slide because here's the thing. God's wrath ultimately wants to destroy the things that destroy us. And sometimes that is us, right? And that's when it gets scary. But God wants to undo the things that undo us. This way of life that's been, you know, snowballing for us as humanity since, we, since we've fallen into sin, God wants to restore us. Um, just, a, just a quick exercise I think would be good for all of us to do is if we want to kind of figure out, like, what is it that God hates? Like, what is he frustrated with? What is, what, what is God so um, wrathful about? Um, I, I think it'd be so good for us to just do a breakdown really quickly of what God is frustrated with. And we can find this in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 specifically. And I'm using uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message because I think that it does a wonderful job just paraphrasing and listing out these things. Um, but, but look at this because this is interesting. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Here are six things God hates. The top ten things, or top six things God hates. And one more that he loathes with a passion. Hey, maybe we should pay attention to this list, right? Eyes that are arrogant, a tongue that lies, hands that murder the innocent, a heart that hatches evil plots, feet that race down a wicked track, a mouth that lies under oath, a troublemaker, in the family. These wise words from Solomon give us a glimpse into the heart of God. God hates the corruption of his creation that he has called good. And it's so wonderful to look at the poetry of this, that, that God is talking about a, a being that he has created, the eyes, the tongue, the hands, the heart, the feet, the mouth, and then finally, the, the relational aspect of it, that, that, they would that they would sow discord in their community. God's wrath is against the things that would pervert and twist the things that he created to enjoy his glory and his creation. He wants them to be used for, for worship and to be in perfect communion with him forever. So how do we see the flip side of this? Like if this is the bad of it, what's the good of it? 
I think the best thing for us to do is say, okay, this is the list of these attributes in a way that God would hate them to be used. So the best example that we have on the opposite end is to look at Jesus. What did Jesus use his eyes for, right? He looked upon the broken, right? That Jesus saw the marginalized, that he wasn't arrogant. He didn't see people as beneath him, but instead came in humility as a servant, right? That he saw you in your sin and still died for you. Jesus' eyes wept multiple times in the Bible. Specifically, the one I'm thinking of is he weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because they just don't get it, right? They don't understand the Messiah is amongst them. The king is amongst them, and they just can't see it. They thought they were becoming wise, and they became fools. And Jesus weeps over us. That even in the wrath of God, Jesus is weeping over his people. What is the tongue of Jesus doing? Well, first of all, in creation, right, he is the, he's the logos, he's the word made flesh, that he spoke life into existence. And beyond that, he speaks truth to the people he encounters in his, in his, uh, his earthly ministry. He uses his words to, to heal, to commune with the Father. What about the hands of Jesus that healed the sick? And instead of murdering the innocent, they were pinned to a cross to atone for the murderer of the innocent, right? Those were the hands of Jesus do, that they're not hatching an evil plot. The heart of Jesus, yeah, and here's this, the heart of Jesus didn't hatch evil plots, but instead it bursted on the cross as he gave up his life as a ransom for those that plotted against him, right? Look at the poetry of that. That God hates a heart that would plot evil, but then the heart of God breaks for those that, plot, that, that have plotted the evil, right? That is what the heart of our Savior does. The feet of Jesus, they didn't race to wickedness. At one point, they walked on water, proving that Jesus is above our fears. He's above our storms. But then they walked to Calvary as a lamb led to slaughter, and they were pinned to a cross for those of us who would run off on him, right? That Jesus said, no, I'm here, right? That I'm sticking here. Though you may run far from me, I'm right here. Pinned to a cross, resurrected, glorified, to pay for your sins. What about the mouth of Jesus? He never lied. He never gave a false witness. Instead, he stuck, out, he stuck himself out for us. That in the midst of being guilty, us being guilty, he asked the Father to forgive us. He had the opportunity to give a truthful witness, and instead he said, forgive them, God. They know not what they do. They've been snowballing in this evil since they walked out of Eden. You know it. We've seen it. But we're going to rescue them, right? That, that the God of the universe is going to rescue us. Finally, Look at this. God detests a troublemaker in the family, but in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was all about turning the troublemakers into his family, right? Kevin, are you glad that Jesus turns troublemakers into family? Yeah, absolutely. Mary, are you glad he turns troublemakers into family, doesn't he? And all he's doing is saying, look, look at my hands, look at my eyes, look at, look at my mouth, look at my feet. This is what I want, right? I want you to, to look at your enemies. And instead of sowing more discord, pray for them. Love those that persecute you. I want you not to, to lie or hatch plans or hold bitterness or use your hands to destroy, but instead use them like I did. Stretch them out. Live this cruciform life that says, God, everything I have is yours. Everything that I've held on to that I thought would make me whole, I realize now what can make me whole again? What can wash away my sin? None of this 
Only you can, right? God's wrath burns against us because we keep taking the tools of worship and using them to kill each other, right? Not maybe physically. I hope not, right? But all we want to do is destroy, destroy, destroy ourselves and the people around us to, to pervert this image of God that he has graced us with, this, this tool of worship, and to use it to destroy. We were made to be formed and reformed into the image of God. And when we run from that, all we do is find ourselves restless and incomplete. But when we recognize this depravity, when we can come to grips with it and say, okay, I can see. I've tried to throw everything out the wall to make this work. I can see now that his salvation is so much sweeter, that his salvation is so much greater, that my sin was great, his love was so much greater, and there's hope. Where is the hope? And this is our final point today. Jesus is the answer to God's wrath. I mentioned this earlier in the introduction, and then I'll go a little bit deeper now, but God's wrath is not at war with God's love, right? I think sometimes we have this image that these are like two powers that are fighting over us. Is God's wrath going to win, and we'll go to hell? Or is God's love going to win, and we'll go to heaven? But it's, it's, it doesn't really work like that. That God is, God, is, um, God is in harmony with himself. He's not at war with himself. It's a similar heresy to kind of saying like, well, the God of the Old Testament was mean. We don't like him. But Jesus in the New Testament is cool. It's like, no, that, that's, that's not the case, right? They are the same God um, that um, the, the, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, that, that believers have been saying for thousands of years, says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Bible says that he is the same yesterday, today, forever, that God is consistent with himself. It is because of his great wrath for sin that he displays an immeasurable amount of love for us, right? 1 John 4.10 says this. This is our life verse. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, in that passage of scripture, God's wrath is evident. It's in that word atoning, right? That something had to die. Something had to pay for the sins of the world. And God, in his great love for us, satisf satisfies his wrath, not by casting it completely onto us, but says, I will make a way. I will send something. I will rescue this world. I will atone for this world by sending my son on behalf of the people to rescue them from their sin. Again, God wants to kill the thing that's killing us. He wants to decimate the sin that causes us to, to hate one another, to turn on each other. God's wrath is the ultimate outcome of his love for the good creation that he wants to save, treasure, and be with forever. And this is why when we read passages of Scripture, like Romans 1, even though it hurts us, we allow it to cut us to slice us up, to expose our hearts, not because we need to walk around in constant shame and regret of our lives, but so that we can know that God, in the midst of that, has pursued you, right? In the midst of that, as he slices and cuts open, he's pursuing you, loving you, reviving you, bringing back into right standing with him. His pursuit of you has been a rescue mission all along, and Paul is reminding us of that. It's like Paul is saying this, hey, humanity, you have been suppressing the one who created you. You walked out on him in the garden because of sin. You were, you were sent out, and you knew him, and it's been woven into the fabric of your existence. And it's time, humanity, to remember who he is, 
It's time to remember who we are and to realign ourselves with a good king whose righteous holy ways are actually only going to give us life, right? I told our students in Sunday school today, right? It's the great joke of, of Christianity. Jesus says, give up your life for me. And it takes everything within us to finally make that decision and make this costly decision to say, okay, God, I surrender everything. The things that I thought were a part of my identity, like, God, I, I liked being a jerk. I liked being rude. It's just who I am. It's my family. But I'll give it up for you. I'll let you install something new into me. And the irony is we give up this life that we think is so precious and amazing. And all he does is give us back everlasting and abundant life in return, right? A life that we could never imagine because it gives hope, it gives peace, it gives something more. It grounds us into something better. So how do we respond this morning? And I think that we're going to get to it in about five years when we wrap up the sermon series, when we finally get to Romans 12. But I really do think that what Paul says in Romans 12 is the answer to how do we respond to this. We present ourselves, right? A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship, that we would be no longer conforming to the ways of old. Not just, I mean, we sometimes we're like, well, don't conform to the world. It's like, no, don't conform to yourself, right? Like, don't conform to your evil, um, your, the things in you that you think, yeah, this will make me whole again. No, don't conform to that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And see the God that loves you. See the God that has a better way for you. That we would do that this morning. That we would say, God, we offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. Um, that, that sounds gross and bloody and gruesome. But God says, no, you're a living sacrifice. You were dead. You were a dead sacrifice to yourself. You were destined for nothing. Now you're living for something greater, right? You're being renewed day after day. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up as we begin to wrap this up. This morning, as a response, what I'd like for us to do is when we, when we go into worship um, is to, first of all, to, to remember our salvation and our baptism. For those of you who are like, well, I'm not really into faith yet. I'm still figuring that out. That's great. This is an awesome morning to say, you know what? I want to give this a chance. I want to trust God. I want to put my trust and faith in Jesus. I want to fully commit to whatever this is, I've been searching for it. It's been haunting me. This is an awesome morning to do that. But for those of us who have made that commitment to Jesus, who have been baptized, this is an excellent chance for us to say, God, you have made me new. That when I went into those waters, they were a watery grave, but they are also like an ambiotic fluid because I came out a new thing, right? And I want to remember that today. I want to remember that I'm supposed to be a new creation, that the old is gone, the new has come, that the wrath that you, that you had on the sinful humanity God, you had it because you love me and you wanted to kill the things that kills me. So today, as we approach God as a living sacrifice, would we remember our baptism? Would we remember um, the salvation that God has extended to us? Because again, we can all find ourselves in Romans 1. We're all in there. None of us make it out unscathed. All of us sin. All of us have things that we can turn over to God. The final thing that I, I just want to do today, and I'm actually going to go ahead and invite now just our, our um, elders and spouses, if you guys would just come on up, um, just to, to be here to pray with others if they would like to respond this morning. Um, as I was studying for this sermon, and it was ju literally just yesterday because our kids were outside playing, and I was like, man, I can't get this song out of my head that just kind of just kept playing over and over and over again. 
um, and I was like, man, I, I, I'm going to look it up and just, um, just read the lyrics because, I mean, it's just such a powerful song. And I want to kind of use this as our doxology this morning, right? Like this would be kind of like the bow on the end of, of everything that I've said today. Um, if you don't remember anything else, remember those passages of Scripture we read and maybe remember this song. It's not Scripture, but it's still good. It's an old Stuart Townend song um, from the 90s. came out two years after I was born. It's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And man, I just had a just a moment yesterday, you know, where you just read something and you're like, oh, I can't help but just cry because, man, God is so good. Man, do I deserve his wrath. So badly, <laughs> I deserve it. But when I read, like, a song like this, a cry from some other man's heart from the early 90s, um, I remember just humanity's cry out, man, how good is God's love? How amazing is it? Would you join me in standing? Here's the lyrics to this song. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out, among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward, I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have made my ransom. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's hope in the wrath. The wrath is killing what's killing you. Sometimes you have to let it cut you. Say, God, how would you heal me? Do the surgery you got to do. I cannot keep living sick. This morning, if you would say, hey, I just need some prayer. This is a chance for confession if you want it to be that, but it can just be a time of prayer. We have people up here that would love to love you, right? Not to judge you, not to condemn you, but to just lift you up and encourage you. We're going to sing a song here in a moment, Fresh Wind. I encourage that to just spur on revival in your heart, right? That God, I, I want you to bring a fresh wind into my life, that you would pour your spirit out on me, that God, I offer myself as this living sacrifice. I, re I remind myself of my baptism, of the salvation that you've granted me, and all I can do is praise you and thank you. Jesus, we thank you. You're so good, so good to us, God. Lord, it can be hard to, to deal with the reality of this passage of Scripture because it, it grates against us. It, it wants to change our identity. But God, you have called us to become new creation. That God, since, since we were kicked out of Eden, all we have done is grow more and more darkened to the, your glory. And God, I pray that today you would open up eyes, open up hearts to know your goodness. That God, the wrath that's burning against us on the other end of it is a mighty, love that wants to rescue us. Thank you, Jesus.
This concludes the teaching. Thank you for listening, and we hope you can join us for next Sunday's service with Pastor Steve Raines.